Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your practice. So today we are beginning the book study of the Platform Sutra, the Hui Nang's Sutra. And uh, this is a very important uh, sutra in our tradition since uh, Hui Neng was a very important teacher in the evolution of Zen or the Zen tradition in China. As most of you know, the Zen sect of Buddhism sprouted around the 5th century in China. Its origin is attributed to Bodhidharma, who was the 29th teacher in direct succession from Shakyamuni Buddha. A little bit of background before we begin the, the book study. Bodhidharma traveled from India to China during the late 4th century, settled down near Shaolin Monastery and began teaching a very unique, no-frills, stripped-down kind of practice that's based primarily on direct observation through Zazen. This new Zen tradition was then passed on from Bodhidharma, who is considered the first patriarch of Zen, to his main disciple, Huike. And then it was transmitted in succession from Huike to Sengtsan, from Sengtsan to Daojin, from Daojin to Hongzhen, or Hongren in Japanese, and then from Hongzhen to Huineng, who officially became the sixth and the last patriarch of Zen. Last fall, as, as some of you may remember, I gave a series of talks about each of the five patriarchs. And uh, I stopped at the fifth patriarch, did not include Huineng, since the plan was to study the Platform Sutra together and then talk about Huineng uh, in length. Up to Huineng's transmission, it was customary for the transmitting teacher to pass on the robe and ball to their successor. And these items became official verification of the transmission. This part of the tradition ended after Huineng died, and Zen started to branch out and propagate through different teachers and through the establishment of the five schools or five houses of Zen. Now, it's important to note that although there are different lineages today, every traditional lineage and every Dharma successor can be traced back to Huineng. This is a historic, historical fact that makes Huineng's story and his teachings quite significant for all Zen practitioners. And there are a few important points or, or aspects of uh, Huineng's life and teachings that uh, really tie us all together in Zen practice. The first aspect is the fact that he was illiterate when he became a successor. He did not know how to read or write. He was uneducated, which in a way goes against the way we think about education, about uh, self-worth, about uh, having and not having. And being illiterate is, is in a way uh, a, good, a good way to describe prajna, because prajna, wisdom in, in Zen, is actually pre-knowledge. It's not accumulated knowledge. It refers to innate knowledge, the knowledge we are born as or we are born because. So it's the knowledge before, not the knowledge that's accumulated. 
the other aspect is the transmission. Hung Jen, the fifth patriarch, recognized Huineng's innate understanding and passed on that transmission to him rather than to other uh, practitioners that have been with him for many years. He passed on that transmission without much uh, formal teaching, which is very unusual. And he did that because he recognized what, what was already there, what was already embodied. Now, of course, later on, uh, it was verified further and it was actually deepened through many years of practice by Huineng. And, and, and the last part, which is important to, to note, is, is Huineng's simplicity, the, the simplicity of his teaching. And sometimes, sometimes because it is so simple, it can be so elusive. It's almost like the thinking mind glances right over it because there is nothing there. And because there is nothing there, it is so profound. Now, it is said that reading this sutra will benefit everyone. So anyone who will read it will benefit. And Ming Chao added to this by saying that those whose, nat whose natural potential is sharp will get the deep. Those whose natural potential is dull will get the shallow. I'll make what you want out of that, but the point is, it can be deeply awakening to anyone. So, uh, from the introduction, Bill Porter, the Red Pine, a few things I want, I want to point out before we begin the actual sutra. He says... Life is important, and death is important, and so is liberation from life and death. This is something we all deal with sooner or later, but it isn't something we all deal with equally well. The Platform Sutra is the response of a Chinese monk named Hui Neng, and it has come down to, it's come down to us. This book has passed through the hands and minds of millions of people throughout East Asia and it has been revered as no other Chinese Buddhist text. It is the only Chinese text ranked alongside with the sutras of the Buddha. Huineng was the sixth patriarch of China's Zen sect, and over the centuries, it has become the most venerated, he has become the most venerated teacher of the world's great spiritual traditions. He was born in 683 in a small town in the southernmost part of China, not far from what is known today as Hong Kong. And he died in the same town in 713. The text that contains his teaching was the first compiled, was first compiled sometimes between 700 and 720 by his disciple Fahai. And it was titled the Platform Sutra because the sermon that forms its heart was delivered from a raised platform before an audience numbering in the thousands. Ever since it was put together, it has been the most studied, the most quoted, the most influential of all the texts that teach that branch of Mahayana Buddhism known as Zen. If, after having read this sutra, readers think that they have gained something, 
then, then they will have misunderstood it. We cannot gain what we already have. Or if readers think that they have lost something, that they have been held, they have been held up by at mind point and robbed of their most treasured conceptions, then they too will have misunderstood it. We cannot lose what we do not have. We all have, well, all we have is Buddha nature. To claim that this sutra teaches anything more than this would be to add feet to a snake. Or as we often say, to put a head on a head. So, part one. Sections one through eleven. Master Huineng took his seat in the lecture hall of Tafan Temple to expound the teaching of Mahaprajna Paramita and to transmit the formless precepts. Seated below him on that occasion were more than 10,000 monks, nuns, and lay people, along with Magistrate Wei Chu of Shaochu and more than 30 officials and 30 scholars. Together, they asked the master to explain the teaching of the Mahaprajna Paramita. The magistrate then instructed the master's disciple, Fahai, to make a record to pass down to future generations so that students of the way who carry on its guiding principle and who transmit it to others might have this testament as their authority. Now, this is uh, similar, as you may remember, to Ananda making records of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, actually, it was all oral back then. He had a phenomenal memory, and uh, he passed on the, the, the Buddha's teaching only by memory. So it was based on what is heard, not what is read. Now, the notes on that part. Formless precepts. This represents Huineng's attempt to encourage his audience to transcend the normal interpretation of precepts as restrictions on behavior. The traditional Buddhist understanding of precepts is a set of rules that prevents bad deeds and encourages good deeds. Thus, from the very beginning, this sutra establishes Huineng's teaching as beyond the confines of mere formality. And this is very important because when, especially when we are, those of us who are looking at taking Jukai or have taken Jukai, the Jukai or learning how to work with precepts, we have to get away from seeing them as commandments, as rigid set of rules that we have to obey. Those are considered living vows. And living vows must change, must be dynamic, and so is a practice. If it's not dynamic, it is as good as dead. So he began by pointing at that. And when he spoke this platform sutra, Master Hui Neng said, Good friends, Purify your minds by reciting the teaching of Mahaprajna Paramita, which means the perfection of great wisdom. Then the master stopped speaking while he purified his own mind. 
Now he, begin with, he begins with good friends. And Bill Porter said, this was not originally a Chinese phrase, but a Chinese translation of the Sanskrit Kalnaya Mitra, which literally means companion of virtue. This refers to someone who cultivates and who encourages others to cultivate virtue. As with any spiritual path, relying exclusively on one's, on one's dedication and energy is seldom sufficient. Thus, the need for spiritual friends, friends who keep us going when our spirit flag, and who point out the way back when we have gone astray. And this is a very important point in terms of how we, what we feel about being a part of a Sangha. And, uh, and receiving guidance, receiving teachings. And, and uh, the, the power of a Sangha is to kind of keep the flame going, to keep the, to keep the tradition alive by keeping each of us, by keeping our practice alive, by keep each of us dedicated to the practice. Right? So the power of a Sangha is actually much greater than we can imagine because it is a great reminder, constant reminder, to turn inside, to reignite the flame again and again and again. And, and beyond that, beyond this commentary, just that beginning, good friends, what does that do, right, when we hear good friends? Immediately there is this, something in us relaxes, opens up. Something in us is, is hearing, embracing, recognition, acceptance, unity. We're all in it together. There is no high, there is no low. Right? They're beyond deep and shallow. This is it. This is the time. This is the opportunity. And this is the person, the one sitting on the cushion, is the only one who can awaken. So good friends. It's a wonderful way to begin a teaching. And it says, it was common to chant from a traditional text before a formal teaching was given, as we still do before Teisho, right? And Bill Porter thinks that they, they chanted the Buddha's verse from the end of the Diamond Sutra, which some of you may remember from our Diamond Sutra book study. And the Buddha ended with a verse. A star dome, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. This is life. To make more of it is just to make more of it. It's nothing but that. And we are nothing but that. So that's what they chanted together before he started teaching. Huineng then began the Teisho after they chanted with silence. And we can, we can see how the, the entire teachings are concluded in there. So everything is, is right there available to us in his beginning with silence, in, in uh, sharing silence with everyone. 
The entire teachings in Buddhism are always freely given and always available without saying a word. Or we can say before the mind moves. And by remaining silent for a while, he expressed to everyone that his, that his entire talk was concluded before he started talking. The heart of our practice, the heart of the teachings, Zazen, sit down, shut up. That's all there is to it. The more quiet we get, the more it opens up naturally. Because what we are looking at or what we're studying is never anywhere else. It's just that because we create so much noise, we get so distracted, we're unable to see it. And being unable to see it, we don't trust it. So by getting quiet on a regular daily basis as we do, we get in touch again and again with how vast it is, how profound it is, and how simple it is. So back to the Sutra, after a long time, he spoke again, Good friends, please listen. My kind-hearted father was originally from Fanyang, but he was dismissed from office and banished to Lingnan and lived in Sinchu, as a commoner, my father died and then I was quite young. And my widowed and destitute mother moved to Nanhai where, where I experienced hardship and poverty and sold firewood in the marketplace. Now Bill Porter points out the fact that it may be surprising to us to see that Hui Neng's short biography appears at the beginning of this sutra. And then he adds in the commentary that it is one of the hallmarks of Zen that its teachings not be separated from our everyday life. So referring to his, and then he says, Buddhas don't fall from the sky. Referring to his life, referring to his own simple biography, his own circumstances, is very important because this, is, this was his own hardship or hardships. We have our own hardships. We have our own challenges. We have our own karma to deal with. He found, he found the teaching, he found the light within, not outside of his karma, not outside of his hardships and circumstances, which is exactly what we are committed to do. Not to run away, but to turn towards. Obviously, we all have different backgrounds and different circumstances. So it's important to not fall into the trap of believing that we are held back by the details of our lives or by the karma. Realization is equally available to everyone. Since obviously what is being realized is inherent in everyone. Not more, not less. Now the line, his father was exiled... In the commentary, it says that his crime may have been nothing more than having a close association with the rulers of the previous Sui dynasty, or perhaps he sided with the wrong faction in the fight to succeed the Sui. 
one second. So this is a bit of a background on his life. Then back to the sutra. Then one day a shopkeeper ordered a load of firewood brought to his store. After he took the delivery and paid me, I walked towards the door and met a customer reciting the Diamond Sutra out loud. As soon as I heard the words, my mind fell clear and awake. I asked the man, what did you get this scripture you're reciting? And he said, on Huangmei country's east, Feng Mao Mountain in Chichu Prefecture. When I was paying my respect to the fifth patriarch, Master Hong Zhen, or Hong Zhen, his congregation included more than a thousand disciples. And while I was there, I heard him tell the monks and lay people that just by memorizing the Diamond Sutra, they would see their own nature and immediately become Buddhas. As soon as I heard this, I felt drawn by something from a past life. I said goodbye to my mother and left for Hang Mei's Feng Mountain to pay my respects to the fifth patriarch, Master Hung Jen. Now the commentaries. So this is Huineng's first encounter with traditional Dharma teachings. So what, what, what did he hear? And more importantly, how was he able to hear? So when we hear a teaching, when we encounter a teaching, there are many ways to hear it. Sometimes, well, often we hear something and the mind takes it, creates some concepts or some interpretations of it we file it away or the mind files it away somewhere and we move on. But sometimes, sometimes it penetrates, it goes directly to the heart, it, it bypasses the mind's activity, goes directly to the center, to the gut, and something responds, something ancient, something, as he said, something before him, something from the past, from past lives. Something responds, something awakens, something recognizes. We all have that. We all encounter that. It's just that because the mind is so active, the thinking mind is so active, we tend to believe what we think more than what we sense. And then what we sense gets covered up with thoughts, with emotions, with, with karma often, right? With repetitive thinking. And it's very important that we allow more and more space to a different way of receiving, a different way of hearing, a different way of perceiving what we encounter. In the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says, Subhuti, this Dharma teaching cannot be heard by beings of lesser aspiration, for beings who lack the Bodhisattva's aspiration cannot hear this Dharma teaching. Now, Bill Porter in the commentary says it's worth noting the power of words, but spoken words rather than words on a page. 
Hearing is more immediate, more direct than reading. Reading easily leads us to intellectualization of text, whereas hearing does not usually give us enough time to do that. It's a very important point. When we hear, something else happens, something else in us can receive that. When we read something, we can actually slow down or stop and allow more time to intellectualize what we hear, to analyze it, to conceptualize it. But when we, so when we, and so when we read, we actually have that flexibility. When we hear something, we actually don't have that time. We don't have the flexibility. So it, it goes directly inside. It awakens something from within. So there is a difference there. And we have to equate that with our own exposure to wisdom teachings. While, while for many people, Zazen may be a waste of time, may seem like a waste of time, and words of a sutra or Zen-related text may not make much sense, for others, for practitioners, it resonates very deeply. And so, of course, we have to ask, what's the difference? The words are the words, right? Zazen is Zazen. Sutras are sutras. Text is text. What's the difference? Right? And it, it's not just saying, well, some people say, it's not for me. This is one way to interpret that, but this goes way deeper than that. My mind says it's not for me. And as long as I go along with my, what my mind says, that's what I will follow. That's what I will do. That's what I will avoid. But somehow for practitioners, we, we know somehow how to go beyond what the mind says. We stick with it. We allow it to penetrate. We allow something else to awaken. We allow something else to something else that resonates with it, we allow it to come up. We allow it to dance. We allow ourselves to dance with it. And it is magical when we do that. So the line, the line that uh, he heard, so I think some scholars may uh, disagree on that, but I think most agree on the fact that the line that he heard, the line that, uh, that struck a chord in him was, dwelling nowhere, raise the body-mind. A mind that dwells nowhere is the awakened mind, is an awakened mind. We often talk about being nimble, flowing, about assuming the shape according to the need. And those are natural characteristics of an awakened mind. We can only recognize the truth in such words if something in us responds and echoes. So such words have the power to remind us of who we really are. Remind us to dissolve the clinging to conceptual self. Dwelling nowhere. Now dwelling nowhere is equally terrifying and freeing. Dwelling nowhere does actually means completely dropping out, letting go, letting go of anything that is known, entering freely, willingly entering, not knowing. Who are you? I 
don't know. Or nobody. That would work too. I am nobody. Now, completely opposite of the way we think of ourselves, completely opposite of what we value. Who value? Who values nobody? So Huineng, in this uh, description, it says Huineng said goodbye to his mother. Now it sounds pretty harsh because he was the sole supporter of his mother, but uh, most likely he did so after he found a benefactor who had the financial means to support his mother, whether he got some money before and then gave it to her or the benefactor supported her. He did not just drop everything and left. He actually did take care of his mother, from what we understand. There's also another aspect here that of renunciation, as the Buddha did, as we need to do. So to, to enter the practice, to allow wisdom, to, to allow a wisdom tradition or words of wisdom to awaken something within or the wisdom within, we have to let go of what we hold on to. We have to renounce. We have to drop out. Now, in this case, and in the Buddha's story as well, they both left and traveled somewhere else. Now, for us, living is not going to appear like that, but there is a, a responsibility or a need for us as practitioners to also let go. And now the letting go does not mean necessarily to... to let go of things or, or, or people, but it has more to do with examining our relationship to things and people. Examining our attach or the level of attachment, the level of identification with stuff and people, thoughts, opinions, emotions, karma. How tightly am I identified is a lot more important than letting it go. What we want to let go of is the idea of me holding on to that rather than letting it go physically. We can equally let go and be attached to the one who is letting go as we are attached to the one who is holding on. So it's not in the letting go as much as in who is the one who is letting go. How is it possible to let go? If there's no one there to begin with. And then Huineng traveled a few hundred miles north to seek the teachings. Now, looking at that, we have to ask, where is our efforts? What are we willing to do? What are we doing in terms of practice? You know, we often say that there is no such thing as a part-time practice. So what is a full-time practice for me? Not as an idea of a practice, but for me. What does it mean to practice constantly? From the moment I wake up until the moment I go to sleep. Not just when I sit zazen, not just when I chant, not just when I read, not just when I work on a koan, but constantly, especially 
especially when life gets messy, especially when we get triggered, especially when, when old habits show up, take us for a ride. Moment by moment, what does it mean to practice? What does it mean to not put it aside? Because the way we think about life has, leads us to, to the, the idea of, I'm going to put my practice aside, deal with it and come back to the practice. Take care of business, then go back to my practice when life slows down, when things calm down, when I'm not dealing with this. That is conceptual practice. Real practice has no beginning and no end. And, and in terms of real practice, the, the uh, raising the intention, being deliberate about it, is always as important. Is always as important to be deliberate, to bring the practice, to bring what we call practice to moment by moment life. And it takes effort. It definitely takes effort. And we get lazy. I think it's important that we admit that we get lazy. The question is, are we okay with that? Are we aware of it and are we okay with that? Because there are consequences. There are always consequences. Whether we get lazy, whether we, we roll up our sleeves and, and do what we need to do, there will be consequences. What we do will determine what's next, will have effects on what's next. And maybe we're okay with that. Maybe that's fine. Maybe we, are, and we, maybe we do have awareness of the fact that I'm just lazy and I don't want to do anything and I'm okay with the consequences that that will lead to. Same with nutrition. I'm okay with eating junk food. I'm okay with the fact that there will be consequences and I'm okay with the fact that it will affect my life in negative ways. I'm okay with that. Some people say that about smoking. I don't want to stop smoking. I know what it does for me. I know what it does. I know how it affects my health. And I'm willing to own up to the consequences. Maybe that's another way to practice. The question is, how do we choose to practice? The fact that we cannot avoid practice pertains to all of us. Whether we are rolling up our sleeves and, and doing what we need to do or just sitting there doing nothing or allowing habits to take us, we're always practicing. Doing the same thing again and again is practice. Obeying habits, obeying karma is a practice. And what's important is that we turn the lights on. Own up and then decide, how do I move now? How do I meet this moment in life? How do I use my own ingredients, the ingredients I was dealt, I was given in my life to cook the best life possible or not? Or not? The 10 directions are wide open. Whatever we do, we should do it with our eyes open. So he traveled north. He was in the south and he traveled north. And he arrived 
at the monastery of the fifth patriarch, Hongjin. And then he said, upon arrival, he said, Master Hongjin then asked me when I arrived, where are you from? And what exactly do you hope to get from me by coming to this mountain to pay your respects? I answered, your disciple is from Lingnan, a commoner of Xingchu. The reason I came all this way to pay my respect is that I want to be a Buddha. I don't want anything else. The master scoffed, but you're from Lingnan and a jungle rat as well. How could you possibly be a Buddha? I replied, people come from north or south, north not their Buddha nature. The lives of this jungle rat and the masters aren't the same, but how can our Buddha nature differ? The master was about to say more to me, but when he saw his attendant standing there, he did not say anything else and sent me to join the Sangha's work workforce. A novice then led me to the milling room where I peddled a millstone for more than eight months. So looking at Huineng's simple and straightforward clarity about his spiritual quests, we need to ask ourselves, what is our intention and how determined are we to see it through? Right? We're not, you know, everything we, we look at in terms of this sutra and, and text, any text, is really not about studying text to memorize it. It's about looking at the text as a mirror. Where am I at in relation to this? Never mind Huineng's life. What about the life I am living? What about this body I'm occupying? What about this moment? Where am I at? It's a lot easier to look at text and study to amuse the mind. It's a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging to use the text as a mirror to our own lives. In other words, it's a lot more difficult to take full responsibility for our lives. It's easier to amuse the mind, which we often do. So if, if we find what we read interesting, we should read again. Because it's not meant to be interesting. So imagine the, the scene of this meeting. Huineng shows up, scruffy, poor, uneducated. And he's standing there before this great master, who was the abbot of a large monastery with over a thousand practitioners. How would you feel if you are at such a moment? Maybe having, looking at yourself, looking at uh, the level of your education, looking at your clothing, whatever it is that you have identified with. And the, and the sense of poverty mind that arises in terms of what we have identified with whether or not we, we feel that we have accomplished enough in life, whether we are worthy enough. And looking at this person who is 
verified as this great master with over a thousand people following him. How do I see this person? How do I see myself? How do I see, how do I understand worthiness of a human being? And Hong Jen goes directly to the point and asks Queen Neng, why did he bother coming up to the monastery? So he's not only standing there feeling this, he's saying, why did you come here? What do you want? And Huineng responds without any hesitation, I'm here to become a Buddha. I know, I know why I'm here. I'm clear on that or about that. He's not shaken up by that, by what Hung Jen said. He's not shaken up by the experience of being there, standing there. Now the word become I think may be a bit confusing when he says, I want to become a Buddha. Since Buddha nature is inherent. So this has more to do with realizing what is rather than becoming what we are already. What we cannot not be in a way. So becoming could be, we can replace that with realizing. In another translation, it says, I ask for nothing but Buddhahood. Which may be a better way to understand the mind of Huineng and his intention at that moment. I ask for nothing else but Buddhahood. And this actually, this way of translating it refers to the way we need to see our practice and the way we need to examine our efforts in terms of from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, are we intentionally working on our, working on our own awakening? Do we stir the pot again and again and again? Do we hold our feet to the fire? Do we peel our eyes wide open? Because that's what that means. Because if we truly want to awaken, it cannot be something we do on a weekend or we do occasionally. We have to be at it all the time. And when we fall down, we get up. Over and over and over again. So I'm here for nothing else but Buddhahood. Now standing there with a single-minded devotion, determination to awakening is an embodiment of our closing night chant. This is what we chant, right? Time swiftly passes by. Opportunities are lost. Each of us must strive to awaken. Each of us must strive to not squander our lives. This is exactly what he's doing standing there. He's saying, I don't want to squander my life. Awakening is the most important thing, the most precious thing in life. Because we have this opportunity and we may squander it. In fact, most people squander it. But as the Buddha said, he said, anyone, everybody can awaken. Most will not. Not because he did not trust that people can do it. 
just because he knew what it takes. He also knew how easy it is for us to follow habits. How easy it is for us to turn away from who we are and make something out of it. So Hung Jen must have felt his determined spirit and the depth of his understanding, but he wanted to press a bit and see the degree to which Huineng's trust his bodhicitta. And so he said, you're an uneducated hillbilly from the mountains. How can you become a Buddha? And without any, any hesitation, Huineng replies, we may look very different, come from a different background and have a different karma. But in terms of Buddha nature, there are no differences. Just imagine that, standing there in front of this great master, this teacher, saying, yeah, of course we look different. Of course we have different degree of education. But fundamentally, how can we be different? It's not even saying we are not different fundamentally. It's, it's a question. It's like, how is it possible that one is more worthy than another in terms of Buddha nature, in terms of original, innate self, true self? How much of that is, is available or apparent in, our, apparent in our lives is the question for us. Now, being available, it's not apparent to us. So we think it's not true. But when we turn into it again and again and again, which is what we do, or what we ought to do in Zazen, go home again and again, turn towards, away from thought, away from the mind that quantifies, away from the mind that says, I am less worthy than him. Look at him. Look at where he's sitting. Look at how, he's look, how he looks. Look at the education. Look at the many people that follow him. Who am I? Right? I'm just, look at me. I'm not educated. Look at my clothes. I'm poor and destitute. Yet he knew. Well, he knew all those details. Obviously, the story is the story. The karma is the karma. The facts are the facts. He knew that none of those facts mean anything when it comes to Buddhahood or when it comes to who we really are, fundamentally. It's incredible power from within. Not something he was given by others, not something he studied through a book, something he knew innately. And it's also something we know innately. If we turn towards it, we see it. If we don't, we don't. Now it is said that Hung Jen wanted to keep the conversation going because he recognized something there. But since his attendant was standing there, he kept quiet. He did not want to reveal anything. He did not want to ruffle any feathers. And he told Hui Neng to go down to the rice shed and help with the milling work. 
And then in the sutra it says, after more than eight months, he said, the patriarch suddenly saw me one day and said, I thought your views were worthwhile, but I was worried that someone might become jealous and harm you, so I didn't say anything more. Did you understand? I said, yes, I understood. And ever since then, I haven't dared to go to your hall and, and to keep from attracting attention. So it's interesting how they, without saying anything, they understood each other. It's like they communicated with each other on a much deeper level. I see you, but I'm not going because of convention, because of the way people are, because of the way the mind works. It's better that I will not say anything. That's what Hung Jen said without saying anything. And this is what Hui Neng understood without replying. Then, one day, the fifth patriarch suddenly called on all of his disciples. He called them together. After they had assembled, he said, I've told you that the greatest concern for human being is life and death. But you disciples spend your days making offerings, just looking for ways to reap merit and not for a way out of the bitter sea of samsara. If you're blind to your own nature, how can you find the doorway to merit? Go back to your rooms and look into yourselves. Those of you who are wise, make use of the prajna wisdom of your own nature. Each of you, write me a gatha, a verse. When I read your verse, if you have understanding of what is truly important, I will give you my robe and my dharma and appoint you as the sixth patriarch. Hurry as if there were a fire. Hurry as if there is a fire, because there is a fire. Bodhidharma said, to find the Buddha, you have to see your own nature. Whoever sees his nature is a Buddha. If you do not see your nature, invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, and keeping precepts are all useless. This is very important. We can go through the motions, we can chant, we can sit, we can read, all in vain. If we don't do the work of turning inwardly and verifying who we truly are. We may look like a Zen practitioner, as Bodhidharma said, but we are nowhere near what a Zen practitioner needs to do. So it's not about looking a certain way. It's not about sounding a certain way. It's about doing the work. It's about taking the responsibility. It's about going home. If you do not see your true nature, it's all pointless, as he says. Now the house is on fire. The Buddha said the house is on fire. He said that so we can understand the urgency to awaken and then embody and express the awakening for the sake of everyone or for the welfare of all creation. And the house is on fire. We do. 
create a lot of unnecessary suffering to ourselves, to others. So there is fire. So it's so important that we stop, that we take a look, that we intercept the habitual way of causing harm, that we work with the precepts. I vow to not cause harm. I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to examine the many ways I do cause harm through my thoughts, through my words, through my actions. I will take the responsibility, not blame, not point a finger, not look at reasoning with my past. I am doing this because in my past this happened, because I had a trauma, and that trauma is making me cause harm now. So what? It may be true, but so what? Does that mean that I am unable to do anything about that because something happened in the past and because of that I have habits? Because of those habits, I'm unable to not cause harm? Or not causing harm will, may happen or may not happen based on chance? Is that how we think? So again, to hold our, our feet to the fire means to examine the way we live and to take the responsibility to embrace a practice. To embrace the tradition and to embrace the tradition always means to take responsibility for this moment. Not to be on the list of, of a Sangha. It's really to take responsibility for this moment. Because this moment is on fire. Or I am in, on fire in this moment, we can say. So in, in another translation, <coughs> Humjen said, Life is very transient. Every, even though we are alive in the morning, we may not be in the evening. Very simple, very much to the point. Even though we are alive now, we may not be later on. Can you say for sure that you know that you will be alive later? Nobody can. We think, I'm going to be around for a while. So, I can squander meanwhile, because later on I can pick up the pieces. Maybe not. Maybe not. And this is, we have to remind ourselves that tomorrow is no, or later is no more than an idea. Or me being later is no more than an idea. There may be later, but this one here may not be there. If anything, it is sobering to actually awaken to that simple recognition of the truth. And it is most important. Master Dongshan once asked the monk, what is the most tormenting thing in the world? And the monk said, hell is the most tormenting thing. And Dongshan said, no. When that which is draped in this clothing, in this robe, is not aware of the great matter, that I call the most tormenting thing in the world. When we are not aware of who we are, it is the root of suffering. It is the most tormenting thing in the world. 
Not how many years we stick around in this body. That's negligible. We can live a hundred years and torture ourselves and each other. So what's the point? And we can live 20 years of bliss, recognizing who we really are. It's nothing to do with, with how long. It has, it has everything to do with understanding that this, is, this moment is most important and awakening to this moment is our most important task as human beings, not as practitioners. So this is what he says. This is what I call the most tormenting thing in the world. Now, um, Hong Jen called these disciples and uh, told them to, to write a poem. It is possible that Hong Jen felt that his days are numbered. And he felt that it is time to look for a Dharma successor. So that's, he asked them to express the depth of their understanding by writing a poem to see who would be most fitting to assume the responsibility of keeping the lineage alive. So having received these instructions, his disciples headed back to their rooms and said to one another, there's no need for us to clear our mind and trouble ourselves about writing a gatha to show to, show to the abbot. The, the venerable Shen Xiu is our precept instructor. He was the head monk. After he receives the Dharma, we can look to him for teachings. Why should we write a gatha? So they all stopped worrying about it, and no one dared to submit a poem. At that time, in front of the Patriarch's Hall, there were three sections long corridor because people left offerings at the foot of the wall. The abbot wanted to cover it with scenes from the Lankavatara Sutra and paintings of five patriarchs transmitting the robe and the Dharma as a record to be passed down to future generations. The painter Lu Chen had inspected the wall and was going to begin work the following day. Now, in the commentary, Bill Porter raises an important, an, an important point about the responsibility of, our own, of our, own, our own awakening. And he says, the one lesson anyone learns in a Zen monastery is that we have to rely on ourselves if we expect to find anything about ourselves. Nobody can live for us or die for us, and nobody can realize enlightenment for us. We have to drink the water if we want to know what it tastes like. But just because Hung Jen can lead people to water doesn't mean he can make them drink. And this is an important point about teaching in general or about knowing how to follow teachings or a teacher, right? To follow teaching or teachers must come with a clear understanding that the responsibility is on us. So expectation that somebody, that it will arrive from the outside or somebody can do it for me or on my behalf is unrealistic expectation. It can only come from within. A teacher is there or the teachings are there to point, to encourage, to support, to embrace, to love, but not to do on our behalf.
And then uh, the vener this number six, the venerable Shen Xiu thought, no one is going to submit a poem because I am their precept instructor. So I'm the head monk. But if I don't submit one, how can the patriarch tell me, tell if the understanding of my mind is deep or not? It would be right for me to show the patriarch a poem that reveals my understanding as long as what I wanted was the Dharma. But it could be wrong as long as what I wanted was the patriarchship. I would be no better than a fool who thinks he can usurp the position of a sage. But if I don't submit the poem, I'll never receive the Dharma. As he considered this, he kept thinking, what a predicament. Finally, at midnight, without letting anyone know, he went to write his poem on the middle of the South Corridor wall in hopes of obtaining the robe and the Dharma. When the patriarch sees my gata, my, my poem, and reads these words, he thought, if he comes to find me the moment I see him, I will tell him I wrote it. But when he sees my gata, if he says it's not good enough, it will be because I'm deluded and the obstructions of my past karma is too great and I'm not ready to receive the Dharma. The master's mind is impossible to fathom. I may as well stop worrying about it. Lots of thinking before he actually started to do something. So the venerable Shenshu held up a, a lantern, a lantern, and wrote his gata in the middle of the south corridor wall at midnight. No one saw him. His gata went. The body, body is a body tree. The mind is like a standing mirror. Always try to keep it clean. Do not let it gather dust. Now, Bill Porter says, Shen Xiu was highly educated monk and should have been able to write a decent poem especially considering what was at stake. Instead, he ends up writing a piece of doggerel that would have been, have been more at home among Hinayana ascetics than Mahayana practitioners. Then again, in this dramatized version of events, Shen Xu does a good job playing the, the straight man and setting the stage for Hui Neng. And Zhuang Tzu wrote once, the realized person uses their mind like mirror, neither anticipating nor welcoming anything, responding to everything and retaining nothing. Such a person is thus able to succeed in all things and remain unharmed. Now, this is referring to the mirror as, as is brought up here in this, in this uh, poem. He says, the body is a body tree, the mind is like a standing mirror. And the mind is like a standing mirror. And then he says, always try to keep it clean. Do not let it gather dust. Now, this is the way we may think about it, right? So we may think that, and the dust refers to our everyday life, our challenges, our existence, occupying this skin bag. And we may think that as long as I can clear it up, as long as I can calm my mind, I'm good to go. And that is already a problem because even if we do, even if we experience moments of clarity, those moments very quickly followed by moments of, or periods of obscurity. Even when we feel freedom, 
some sense of freedom from karma. Tomorrow, the next day, the next month, we feel trapped again with the same very karma we thought we freed ourselves from. Circumstances, conditions, suffering, pain, ill health is not an option. If we think we have to sweep it, we have a problem. An old master once said, sweep as much as you want. You will never empty the mind. You will never empty the mind. And as long as we think that the problem is the thinking mind, we will keep falling on our face again and again and again. The problem is thinking that the thinking mind is a problem. This is where it lies. So what we're trying to do is impossible. And more than that, what we're trying to do is not necessary in order to realize. Because we think it's an obstacle, it becomes an obstacle. And this is revealed here in this verse. So we're going to end with that. I want to see if anyone wants to say something. We have a few minutes for that. But we're going to end with that. But the point here, and then we're going to next time begin with uh, the way uh, Hui Neng responded to this uh, verse after seeing it, or, or the way the fifth patriarch responded to that first. But what's important with this is to, to, to look at ourselves. So everything we've read so far, to look at ourselves and ask, where am I at in relation to this? What is this awakening in me? What is it reminding me to do? Is it helpful? Is it putting fuel in the tank for me so I can keep going? So let's take a few minutes. We don't have too many, too much time. So go directly to it. If you want to comment on it, if you have a quick question, please unmute and go for it. I thought it was interesting that um, Hui Neng's background is that he actually comes from a rich family, his family of a magistrate. And so in his own life, in some way, he experienced the transitory of the stuff in the material world. Um, and although he was illiterate, he, um, as, the tech, as the commentary suggested, his, his mother may not have been. Um, certainly his father wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought that he had this, um, he was in one place in the world, but it was certainly not a place that was um, necessarily always going to be a gatherer of firewood. Um, so I thought that dimension of his biography was interesting. Yes, uh, my something happened with my camera, by the way. I apologize for that. I'm not sure what it is. It's disconnected, connected. Yes, Rezan, thank you for that. Right, he uh, he did come from that background, but then... Uh, when he came to see the fifth patriarch, obviously a lot has changed for him, right? And that's what uh, that's what the fifth patriarch saw, right? So the question is, uh, there's a question of identity. Was he identified with that? How did he see himself? How do we see ourselves? More importantly, but thank you, Reza.
Jakodo, did you bow to say thank you or to speak? Just to say thank you. Okay. Okay, anyone else? I suppose. Good morning. Good morning, El. Um, I suppose I'm a little. I suppose I'm a little confused about why uh, that what the head monk or the preceptor monk submitted is described as doggerel. I just remember when I read that, that was really striking to me. And also kind of striking to me because when I read the gossip, I was like, that's nice. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, and it is. It is nice, right? It, it's a nice way to see that. And uh, actually, the fifth patriarch does say it can be helpful, right? It can be helpful to guide people in the right direction. So it does help, right? It's not, not good. It's just that it's not yet that deep, right, to assume uh, the successorship, which is what he was looking for, right? But he did say that people who will read that will be pointed in the right direction. So you're pointed in the right direction. Thank you. Anyone else? Daibo, good morning. Your turn. Hi. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, I I was I was struck with something that I've been I've been working on and has has come up in the Zen art and poetry workshop. I can't find the, the specific section. I was looking back for it. But it says if if you don't come from the bodhisattva perspective, you won't understand it. You won't get it, right? You'll read and you'll read and you'll memorize, but mm -hmm. but you won't understand it. And that to me seems like a very important point because you know we as Zen practitioners, in in order to truly. Um, for our practice to truly arise, that's the perspective we need to come from. We need to come from this predisposition that, you know, there is a need to help, mm -hmm. that there is a need um, to show compassion, that there is a need to be selfless. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that happened in the, in the workshop, this ongo, is that when we dug into people's expressions, the expression they thought they were giving was much shallower than the one that they were really giving once you kind of scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. And it was this, this feeling of, of openness and connection and interconnectivity that seemed to be what was at play. So when we read in the commentary that, you know, if, if you don't come from this Bodhisattva perspective, you're going to miss it. I found that that was, you know, very helpful, mm -hmm. um, you know, explanation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So yes, a bodhisattva perfect, right. Uh, the, the, so to see, to, to understand the depth of being there for other people, right? Being there as other people, right? So to see that as the most important way to function as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Buddha, right? As a bodhisattva. 
And I often find that uh, this is what uh, the, the, the link that the precepts or studying the precepts for Jukai can provide. It is very important, right, to note that, well, two things. First of all, to, to be reminded that, that working with precepts is everybody's responsibility, whether or not we have taken Jukai, right? We always have to look at the precepts and work with them from day one. But going through, and those of you who have studied Jukai understand that, going through the process of studying the precepts, working with them, contemplating them, I think opens that up, the understanding of what it means uh, to take the initiative, to be a bodhisattva, to, to practice a bodhisattva, right? It's not something, it's not an idea or a title, it's moment by moment practice of embodiment. And uh, um, we can't overemphasize, there's no way to overemphasize how important it is to actually take the precepts, right? It's not something that, uh, you know, it's not, okay, well, now you've been here uh, so many months or years, now you have to take precepts. It has to come from within. But at the same time, we have to understand the power of actually studying the precepts. So we're not putting on a hat or taking on a role as much as opening up the understanding of what it means to be a bodhisattva, as you just uh, said, Daibo. So thank you. We are very important. Anyone else before we wrap it up for the day? Yeah, Mukan, I see you. Yeah, just quick, I... I um... I think every time we do a book study, I'm consistently amused and kind of reassured that in thousands of years, things kind of never change. Um, there's still people, people concerned about giving the right answer to the teacher instead of uh, yeah. giving their answer and, uh, and also somewhat concerned about, uh, I don't know, order of operations, uh, just in the case that well, he's the one who's supposed to succeed him as patriarch, so he'll give the answer, so let's let him do it. And then even he was concerned about giving the right answer out of fear of not getting the position and stuff like that. So it's it's always just really amusing uh, how much we, we consistently uh, get in our own way and uh, to the point where, I don't know, this is something that I struggle with of... Uh, to the point where a direct, honest, authentic expression is is completely uh, alien to us, um, and yeah. we don't even recognize it uh, within ourselves. So it's just interesting to me. Yeah, thank you, thank you for the for the reminder. Yes, uh, it's interesting how how much the same we are, right? Uh, uh, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, uh, the trepidations, right? The, the wandering, pondering, thinking, emotions, karma. But what's important with this is to recognize that the disease is always the same and the cure is always the same, right? So we actually produce the disease while, occup while occupying the, um, the treasure, basically, right? We produce the disease, we create it, try to free ourselves from it, while all along we are the cure. And that has not changed. What has changed in a way is just facade, right? It's just ways to make ourselves more comfortable, which can numb us further, obviously, right? We could put us, put us to sleep, sleep even further. But the point is, 
the disease is the same, the urgency is the same, and the cure is also the same. So, all right, that's a good way to wrap it up. Thank you, Mukan. Thank you all. Wonderful. Thank you for, for participating. And uh, we will announce when the next uh, book study will be. It may actually be next Sunday. But uh, stay tuned. Thank you.